that is a little preview of a song that I will play later on in this episode of the Midnight Mystics. That is Trick of the Sun by Bird and Wolf, which is Sylvie Ali on vocals, lyrics, and organ, and Ontero Ali on the guitar. This hour, we're going to be speaking with a brilliant author, filmmaker, visionary, and a philosopher by the name of Ontario Ali, and our really good friend and musician, Brian Alvarez, out of Chicago, Illinois. This is Zachary Wolk speaking to you on Tuesday night slash Wednesday morning. Happy winter solstice, everybody. Hope everybody is doing well out there. If you don't know Ontario Ali, you should get to know Ontario Ali. Ontario Ali is an author and a filmmaker whose films are all available for free online. Um, he runs the website Vertical Pool, which is a resource for a lot of his work with the eight-circuit eight brain model and the different modalities to understand the different spheres and levels of consciousness that we can engage with. So over the next hour, we dive a little bit into his book Angel Tech, which sort of is a intellectual understanding of the eight circuit model through a basis of a bit of a metaphor with going through school. So each different circuit of the brain is represented by a different grade that you pass to get to another grade. I had a lot of notes from this book that I wanted to bring up with Ontario, but since it was our first opportunity to chat with one another, um, we just dove into a little bit of how he got inspired to write his books and inspired in what drives him to make the films that he makes. Um, he gave us the assignment of watching The Vanishing Field, which was awesome. It was... Uh, it was a meditation on confusion, a meditation on the disaffected in today's world and how the lengths we can go to to escape the disaffection that we have with society and with some of the things that we see our species up to. Um, Brian is a huge fan of Robert Anton Wilson. Robert Anton Wilson wrote the foreword for Angel Tech. And so we're going to start this conversation before Ontario jumps on with a little preface conversation that I had with Brian. And uh, everybody should stay wild and listen to Brian Alvarez's album, Stay Wild. I'll also be playing one of his songs at the end of this episode. But without further ado, listen to the conversation that Brian, Ontario, and myself had. And I hope you enjoy it. I hope you get something out of it. Extract some treasure and enjoy search or your learning whatever it is uh you will if at least i will i had these experiences of going oh yeah wilson talked about that briefly and i'll go and like find it in in his book whether it be illuminatus or cosmic trigger uh or prometheus rising and then say okay i see the connection he's making now and so that was what really sucked me in sucked me in and then when i realized his whole approach of gorilla ontology kind of going in there and uh, you know, planting mind bombs to go off at just the right time. Uh, it shifted a lot of my perspective. And one of his final uh, philosophies that he was talking a lot about was his maybe logic. And uh, the idea that maybe this is a true thing that's occurring. Maybe it's not. Like, or maybe there's variations of those, of that truth and untruth that exists in any situation, especially in spirituality. And so I've 
taken that and have learned quite a bit about my own self and learning not to take my own BS, to fall into my own belief system too deeply and remember that maybe that's just BS, uh, but maybe it's not. And I think that perspective is a very important perspective to hold, especially in the age of, of fake news or uh, the, the, the strips that is reality TV or just uh, our uncertainty of the glitches that happen around us and saying, did that really happen? Maybe it did, maybe it didn't. What is that result? What does that mean to me in this moment? You know, kind of going back to Antero's film, it's like, great, you had that experience. Come back now, come back to the now. And um, it helps me with that process. The Eighth Circuit model, I thought Prometheus Rising was a, uh, a fiction. Is mm -hmm. it not a fiction? No, Prometheus Rising was basically Wilson's kind of uh, uh, deep dive study into the Eighth Circuit model, model which was created by Timothy Leary. Uh, it was written as a like a master's thesis, um, and it is specifically uh, his one of his more non-fiction works that I think guides a lot of his other works. Uh, uh, twenty twenty-one. Yeah, <laughs> it seems like a really long ways away. Uh, this past year has felt like ten years. For sure. Time is compounded. It's been a trip. Yeah, it's weird. This is kind of like this uh, new uh, word. Um, what day is today? It's a uh, blurs day. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Whenever anybody asks me that, I just say it's Tuesday. That's just Tuesday. <laughs> it's Tuesday. <laughs> All day and tomorrow. Well, I'm pouring a cup of coffee and I'm raising a cheers to happy blurs day, guys. Happy blurs day. Here's, here's the Blur's Day. Um, Ontario, can I get you to say your name correctly? Oh, cool. Um, Ontario. Um, so the word, it's like two words. On, tarot, like tarot cards. Ontario. 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 Um, Ontario. And then your last name? Ollie. Ollie. Yeah. Well... You are listening to Shady Pines Radio. We are recording a podcast with Antero Ali. Is that correct? That's right. And Brian Alvarez in Chicago. Hey, Brian. Correct. Hello. Um, we're really honored to be joined by such a brilliant writer, director, creator, laugher, pleasure seeker. <laughs> coffee drinker, and uh, all-around good guy from what I could tell on Tarot. And um, I, I plowed through Angel Tech yesterday in preparation of this interview. It was written in 1985, and I'm curious if you can speak a little bit about the creation of that book. Oh, wow. Okay, going back uh, with the time machine here. Uh, <laughs> Um, let's see, the book originated um, in an adventure I had where I found myself reading um, a book by Robert Anton Wilson called Cosmic Trigger. And 
I was completely um, kind of blown away, like many people have read that book. I never really read anything quite like it before, what he called his neurological autobiography. And it turned out that um, one night a friend of mine called me and said, hey, um, what are you doing tonight? I'm going to this Discordian salon hosted by this guy named Bob, my friend Bob. I said, sure, let's go. And so I brought my book with me because I kind of, you know, would bring that book almost everywhere I went. And it turned out that Bob hosting the Discordian Salon was Robert Anton Wilson. And so it was this kind of synchronistic um, meeting of just showing up in his living room and talking with, with Bob Wilson and reading um, Cosmic Trigger and then discovering in that book a very short section dedicated to... Um, uh, Timothy Leary's Eight Circuit Brain Model that really stood out. Of all the things in that book, that's kind of what caught my attention and more than anything else. I mean, the whole book is really a fantastic read, but that um, was my takeaway from it. Um, and where it went from there is a little bit hard to explain because I went through a number of different permutations of my own personal life. I was pretty young then, I was in my mid to late 20s. And my background at that point was um, writing and directing uh, theater pieces, uh, experimental theater in Berkeley, California. Um, and that's how I identified myself more like an artist, theatrical person, playwright, um, performer kind of person. And in reading the Eighth Circuit Brain uh, system as presented by Wilson and then also by Timothy Leary and also Wilson wrote a book called Prometheus Rising which he kind of cracked it open to a much larger field of um, explanation. I noticed that um, both Wilson and Leary had a really strong grasp on the theory of the eight circuit brain but uh, I was really kind of hungering for the application like you know what how could I possibly experience firsthand um, these amazing states of consciousness that the eight circuits represent? Because it's a symbolic system. The eight circuits don't necessarily represent actual circuits in the body or the brain. It's just a way of talking, a way of um, you know, representing, uh, kind of a map to represent to the territory of actual states of experience and consciousness. Anyway, I decided... Um, on a lark, meaning, you know, I was like a total unknown. I didn't know really what I was doing, but I knew theater and I knew theatrical experience, um, which was very also close to ritual and certain kinds of inner um, somatic and meditative practices. Anyway, I marshaled everything I knew up to that point uh, to begin experimenting with various rituals, tasks, meditations, outlooks, ways of adjusting my thinking that may somehow trigger the experiences that the, um, uh, the eight circuits represent. And that led to about a five-year process of um, you know, writing down the results of my um, experiments uh, just for personal use. I would not like writing a book to be published. Um, this was almost like a kind of a private, you know, journal or diary or something. And, um, and one day my roommate at the time 
uh, he was kind of leafing through my papers in my bedroom. I was like, wow, what are you doing? I mean, he's looking at it. He goes, you should publish this. I go, no way. Um, it's all like really private, personal, subjective stuff. <laughs> no, nobody's going to be really interested in this. And um, anyway, to make a long story short, I started writing um, and organizing uh, all these exercises around the Eighth Circuit Brain System as a way of um, bringing it into embodiment, bringing it into personal experience and application. Um, and I had enough material um, that maybe it was about six months after meeting Bob, I told him what I was doing. And Bob's wife was in the room. Her name's um, Arlen, Arlen Wilson. And she took a special interest and she volunteered, almost like spoke out loud, said, Bob, why don't you take, uh, take a look at um, uh, Antero's um, manuscript? Uh, maybe you can write a preface for it. And Bob just kind of scowled like, <laughs> who, who is this young whippersnapper thinking he can just come in and, you know, take over the space here with his, you know, fucking manuscript or whatever. <laughs> and, but the thing is, is, you know, Arlen was a very powerful lady and, you know, she in many ways, I think was um, kind of almost like the brains behind the operation there, almost like, you know, Bob's muse in a way. And so Bob just accepted and said, okay, I'll take a look at it. And, um, you know, the surprise uh, was that he, he wrote a, a preface for the manuscript, which allowed me to actually put it into book form and, and say, wow, okay, I've got something that I might be able to present to a publisher and, you know, make it, you know, make it work as, as a sellable book, because I had never done anything like that before. Um, so I got rejected at maybe, you know, 10 or 15 publishers, um, and I just decided to publish, you know, limited edition myself of 300 copies, 300 books. And they sold, like within, I don't know, four or five weeks, they were just sold, and it gave me enough money to go ahead and print um, a thousand copies. And at that time, I had um, sent one of the first editions to Timothy Leary, thinking, hmm, maybe Timothy would, you know, say something about it, not assuming or expecting that he would, because that was, he was clearly um, out of my league. And um, lo and behold, one day in the mail, I get a letter from Timothy Leary. Um, <laughs> presenting an endorsement saying, hey, you know, I, I, I can't really remember what he said, but it was like about four or five sentences. It says, maybe this will help, you know, sell the book. Uh, maybe you can approach Falcon Press because, you know, they've been courting me to um, publish, you know, my books there. And so that's one thing led to another. And so Falcon Press picked it up in 1986 and it's been in print ever since. Wow. And how many copies have been printed? Do you know? Oh no! Oh, let me say, shoot. I'm see. Maybe it's gone through nine or ten editions. It could be. Hmm. And then there's the Kindle version. Um, it could be somewhere between by now between anywhere be, between fifty and a hundred thousand. 
wow. I guess. What do you think about that? I don't. <laughs> there you go. Yes, that is. <laughs> yeah, I don't. I, I, have, I have better things to think about. Right on. Um, I'm curious when you revisit that material uh, around the year 2020, maybe, um, if you see any of that, uh, that reflection of your younger self and you disagree with any of your thoughts. Um, maybe your um, method has evolved since then. I would imagine it probably has. Um, is there anything particular, particular about Angel Tech that you look at and you go, um, oh, that's not, or I would have written it a little differently, revisiting or like remastering it in 2020? No, um, I did that actually in 2009 um, when I wrote my second and final book on the Eighth Circuit System. Um, also now published by the original Falcon Press. Uh, that book's called The Eighth Circuit Brain um, Navigational Strategies for the Energetic Body, and it's also um, still in print. And I wrote that book um, not because I actually wanted to, because you know, writing books is like probably the most difficult thing I know how to do, and I'm in some ways a kind of a lazy person, so I'm always resisting doing the most difficult thing I know how to do. But um, there was something about being in my late 50s at that time um, that kind of called to me saying, okay, you're not really writing this for yourself anymore. You're writing for another generation that's coming up from, you know, uh, from the ranks or whatever. And, and it was a complete update and distillation uh, from what I wrote in Angel Tech. It's really a different kind of book. And in fact, this new book carries within it um, the structure and the content and all the exercises and rituals of, um, of an eight-week um, course of study and practice that I've been using as the syllabus for an online uh, interactive course that I present once a year, um, you know, every March um, uh, for um, eight weeks. For people who you know who want to really get into the um, uh, application of you know this um, system, so it's not just a theory or not just some kind of brilliant intellectual map that you know you can kind of you know ooh and awe ah at, but you can actually somehow um, you know use it as a diagnostic grid or a diagnostic tool um, you know to track. Um, uh, states of consciousness and especially you know for those people who have um, let's say activated upper circuits through psychoactive drugs and they find themselves flailing of just you know they got maybe 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 they got too high or maybe they um, you know have not figured survival out haven't figured out how to meet their survival needs and so they suffer from this uh, almost like delusions of grandeur where they have all these big visions of the world and how the world could change and what they can do and all these aspirations, but they just don't have the foundation to manifest any of it. And going through the eight circuits helps organize and kind of ground that those visions and those um, desires. Um, it did for me, and so far, because um, I've been doing this now for about 15 years, um, 
according to what people tell me, it's also done it for you know some of the individuals that have uh, taken it. A big part of the so-called grounding or this capacity for manifesting one's dreams, one's visions, one's higher states of consciousness um, is is quite a bit of work. Uh, it, it's it's not going to be um, an easy route. Um, however, if you're motivated enough or desperate enough. Um, you know, you stand a chance of actually accomplishing something. And the, the self-work I'm referring to is, is really one of um, uh, exposing within yourself um, uh, the um, uh, outdated, uh, impersonal, cultural and social uh, definitions of um, the bottom four levels of survival, physical survival, emotional intellectual and social survival and then replacing those uh, once you've exposed the outdated definitions that were never yours you just kind of absorbed them or took them in without really thinking about them but once you're able to expose them and begin um, kind of dismantling um, your um, your psyche around you know what it means to survive on these four levels and then you come into your own most um, kind of truthful or more honest um, definitions and versions of these four levels of survival. And this is a real integrity test because without being completely honest with yourself, um, it, it doesn't really work. Hmm. I'm I, curious, uh... oh, go ahead. Oh, I was, I was just going to say, um, I actually uh, wanted to acknowledge that. That was something that having, uh, I also have gone through Angel Tech uh, somewhat recently, having come from a background of reading Prometheus Rising and Cosmic Trigger, um, there was uh, almost that desire to want something that's more practical, something that makes more sense to my everyday life versus something that was deeply philosophical, which has an importance obviously but one thing i've noticed with angel tech is that it actually gets into the nitty-gritty of explaining these these kind of uh lower programmed aspects with the first four circuits but then what does that mean for the individual expression for the higher four circuits uh that was something that really pulled me into the book because uh, it it gave me language to even express certain things that may have been inevitable before that uh, and so uh, I, I, I like that. That's very, I appreciate that. Well, thank you. Um, yeah, I wrote Angel Tech, like I said, in my late 20s. And I was a kind of, um, that was a time where I was also in um, a, a punk rock band of my own. Um, so I was kind of a punker. And so Angel Tech came out of that whole do-it-yourself um, punk ethos. Um, and which is a big part of what motivated me, me to, okay, not wait for anybody to tell me how to do anything, but start to experiment on myself, almost like make myself the guinea pig, make myself the experiment. Um, I became the lab uh, itself. And I think that if I didn't, if I wasn't into punk rock and making my own music and my own band, and I, I don't know if I would have gone that way because I think it was really somehow um, part of the, of what energized it for me. I think part of the aesthetic too of Angel Tech, some of the visuals kind of reflect that um, time period. 
what the version that I read was almost like a collage in the way that a lot of images were uh, graphed into that printing. I, I don't know what year it was uh, published, the, the version that I saw. Um, but uh, it was almost Gonzo style, I, I would describe it as. Um, uh, mixing and mashing different mediums together to convey the messages um, of the model that you present for the Eighth Circuit mind or the Eighth Circuit brain is going through grade school, right? Elementary school, middle school, and high school. Yep. And um, I'm curious, going back to something that you were saying earlier, um, I'm curious if there is a um, analysis or something like when I'm putting myself through a test like this, I sometimes question whether or not I'm being honest with myself. And it says, you, you know, you mentioned that this requires like true, extreme, radical, brutal, transparent honesty with yourself. Um, I sometimes have a difficulty with that, like seeing myself clearly. Yeah, well, welcome to the club. <laughs> <laughs> or, yeah, it's pretty common. Um, you know, it's something that everybody struggles with in some way or another, you know, this whole question of how do I tell the difference between what's real and what's fantasy or what's symbolic from what's actual, you know, it's a real <clears throat> test to critical thinking in some ways um, as well, you know, as integrity and, and self-honesty. Um, I think my work in theater helped um, a lot in uh, kind of developing a um, foundation of self-support through a kind of radical uh, self-acceptance. Because in the theater, uh, when you're working on a character or developing a story or looking to communicate and share a story through a character, um, you're really uh, accessing a kind of spectrum of humanity. Uh, you don't want to leave anything out. You want to be open to any um, color of the rainbow or the spectrum of the human experience um, that you that you can uh, avail yourself to. So um, I think that helped quite a bit, and it can, it can be kind of unfair too because. Um, not everybody that reads Angel Tech has a background in theater, and yet that's where it came from. And this is part of what gave me the um, the confidence to test certain um, uh, circuit experiences or test certain uh, rituals or meditations to see if they resulted in the particular quality that I read about. Oh, this circuit six, there's this kind of relativistic um, what Robert Anton Wilson called um, uh, reality selection of being able to to uh, kind of um, scan a number of different realities and be able to perceive them all in equal value. So it was this kind of relative uh, consciousness of relativity. And, um, you know, psychoactive drugs, psilocybin, um, LSD, um, you know, mescaline, you know, sometimes um, cannabis uh, can naturally open that circuit six up where, you know, you can see a number of different possibilities, number number of different reality tunnels, as Bob would call them, as equal in value. It's not like one is better than the other. They're just different. And that, in opening that up, um, uh, it also allowed me to become more 
uh, tolerant of other people's reality tunnels where I wouldn't judge them so quickly or so badly or poorly or whatever and realize, okay, that's their reality tunnel. It's not better or worse than mine. It's just different. Um, and yet at the same time, there's a danger in over identifying with these circuit six relativistic consciousness, thinking that, oh, this is who I am. This is the end all be all of life. Um, because if there's a, um, how can I put this, uh, a, a certain uh, quality of indecision and fence sitting that comes along with seeing everything as equal in value. And, you know, it's almost like if you don't know where you really stand, you'll fall for anything, you know, that there's this sense of um, uh, a loss of emotional anchor of, you know, what is it that you actually care more about than other things. And so that's a more of a circuit two um, process of discovering, you know, uh, where you're emotionally invested because you want to be emotionally invested. Where, where is it that things, something matters more than anything else because you need it to matter more than anything else. And this um, discovery uh, opened up a whole new way of seeing the eight circuit brain system that I didn't read about um, with Leary or Bob Wilson's in, in, in their books something that I've come to call shocks and anchors, where the upper circuits uh, all represented very specific types of outside shock to the system, to the nervous system, whereas the lower circuits potentially could act as anchors for stabilizing the um, shocks of the upper circuits in very specific ways. Um, and the specific ways I discovered was that um, the first circuit, you know, physical survival, physical intelligence can act as a uh, anchor or a stabilizing influence to circuit five, which represents uh, the consciousness of ecstasy and bliss and just getting high off of your own supply, being in the present moment and, you know, that sort of thing. And without a, um, a solid uh, foundation, you know, in a physical world, um, you know, if you're just uh, kind of fixated in getting high all the time, it can basically simply act to disperse your life. Things become more scattered or more kind of, you start spacing out. You become like a bliss ninny space cadet kind of character uh, without um, an, much of an anchor. And then, you know, the second circuit can act as a... Um, as an anchor to the shocks of, of the sixth circuit, which is the, the shock of relativity, the shock of uh, uncertainty, um, and the third circuit intellectual uh, grounding uh, can act as an anchor to circuit seven, which moves consciousness into a much uh, wider and wilder field of um, recognizing um, indivisibility uh, complete unity with all living things um, symbolized and also um, paralleling uh, the DNA or the you know the universal language of of, of DNA and you know, how you know we are part of everything because we're alive um, and so it's the shock of indivisibility uh, which is a shock to uh, the separatist ego which sometimes 
what actually quite often happens, especially with individuals that are chiefly um, identified in third circuit, you know, identify as intellectuals, that they are the rational people and so forth and so on. And what happens there is that they, um, uh, when they're confronted with um, any experience of indivisibility where, you know, their intellects are stunned and shocked by the prospect of unity, that there's no division, no duality for the intellect to bounce around and deduct and compare itself to intellect requires association, it requires duality so it can do what it does. Those experiences that open you up to, um, you know, non-dual uh, consciousness um, are mind-blowing. And so the Third Circuit kind of gets blown out and it has to rearrange itself to include within its conceptual framework, um, you know, some kind of symbol for unity, some kind of reference, some kind of recognition and respect for, um, you know, the mysteries beyond its own comprehension. And, um, you know, circuit for social moral survival or social moral intelligence uh, can act as an anchor to help stabilize circuit eight um, experiences. And that's probably uh, genuinely the most weird and out there experiences that the eight circuit brain can track uh, circuit eight because it uh, really refers to um, out of body experiences, um, whether you're doing it intentionally or whether it's spontaneously happens to you. Um, but it, it really puts you in a whole different uh, dimension that, you know, sometimes can be catalyzed by DMT, uh, sometimes near death experiences, uh, sometimes, you know, various different shocks of happen in you know, real life, you know, where people, especially during this time when you get, <laughs> You know, so many people in the hospitals on ventilators, um, they're full on connected to circuit eight events because they are now out of their bodies. And what's happening to them is anybody's guess, but not every, not every one of them returns. And those that do return, they have stories to tell because um, it's a whole different um, uh, world out of the body uh, and how to uh, live with, um, those experiences, you know, coming back into the body, how do you live with that? And this is actually part of what happened to me. I mean, I wasn't in the hospital with COVID. I wasn't on a ventilator, but early on in my life, I did have a, um, a genuine outer body experience that um, uh, pretty much um, altered the way I view myself and so-called reality for, I mean, to this very day. But at the same time, it has, um, <clears throat> acted as a source of uh, ongoing inspiration uh, for many of the um, uh, the films and the themes of the films um, uh, that I've made over the last 20 years. Can I ask you a question about that? Of course. So in your film, um, the, the Vanishing Fields or the Disappearing Fields? The Vanishing yeah. Fields. Vanishing, vanishing Fields. Vanishing Fields. Um, your protagonist, Jacob, he intentionally um, is trying to commit conscious suicide 
um, through um, through a means of transcendence um, via meditation in a monastery, and then ends up having these out of body experiences. Um, so I'm curious in your own life, if your out of body experiences were intentionally brought on or if they were circumstantial to maybe some psychoactive substances or, or what brought about your out of body experience? Um, of the several, um, experiences that I would call out of body, there was only one that I would really authenticate as an actual out of body event. And that was not intentional. Uh, it was spontaneous and I wasn't trying to get out of my body. Uh, it, it simply happened after, um, a very intense rehearsal process for a play that I had written. Uh, and I was just uh, completely exhausted. Uh, and I was just laying in bed, um, waiting to go to sleep because that's pretty much all I felt like I could do at that point. I was just, just totally spent. Um, and then there was a series of internal events that occurred and I can remember them as if they were just happening yesterday. Um, I won't go through all the different phases, but basically what, what it resulted in was me discovering uh, a new vehicle of this person called Anchoro, um that didn't involve my physical body. I was another entity that was independent of the physical and all of a sudden I was that. I wasn't just my body because I could see my body there on the bed next to my girlfriend at the time who was asleep. And I was looking at my body and I remember saying, oh shit, I, I totally am not as good looking as I thought I was. Um, I was like a vain, you know, 20 something guy. And um, I came out of that experience. It was um, at first really uh, kind of pleasurable and um, novel and really fascinating, but it led to some very harrowing encounters with uh, other disembodied entities that I wasn't prepared uh, to deal with or I wasn't didn't really have the knowledge to how to how to hang around and deal with these other entities and so somehow I got back into my body again um, and woke up you know in my body just completely like in cold sweat right and just completely um, terrified is what I was. And I was waking my girlfriend up and told her what had happened. And all I could do was just kind of cling to her, you know, thinking that maybe this was all a bad dream. It will all go away. Um, and the funny thing is, is that the next day, even though it was a really terrifying experience, I actually tried doing it on purpose. I actually said, I want to do it again. And I got to about maybe three, the third of maybe seven stages that I had undergone and it wouldn't go after the third stage and there was no way I could force it. So it was just like, okay, that's what, you know, that's what was meant to happen. And yet just that one time, um, you know, shattered any notion of, um, you know, total identification with not just the physical body, but material existence in general, um, it kind of launched me into a lifelong process of finding 
language, and what I mean by that is not just words, but um, the language of theater, the language of cinema, the language of music, as a way of finding ways to share this experience. Because I knew that if I didn't find ways to share the experience, it would lead to a certain kind of isolation um, that I wasn't comfortable with. And so that was, you know, really the motivation, the drive was, um, you know, to communicate and to share the story. So I've been sharing a lot of stories since then. Are you, uh, does your love of filmmaking spur off and originate from a, a love of theater and that theater is kind of like dwindling in interest so that you're picking up the mantle in film or do you think that film is legitimately one of the best um, media mediums for weaving mythology and lessons in storytelling in today's time? Like, do you, do you, do you see more power in theater or cinema, I guess is the question. Um, just different, you know, you know. Uh, they're just very different. Okay. Um, okay. So with film, and I still am very keen on theater. Um, in fact, I took a five year break from filmmaking to um, produce five um, different productions here in Portland over the last, you know, four or five years. Uh, and I'm back into filmmaking. But the reason I got into filmmaking um, back in, um, since like 93, it was my first feature film, The Oracle. Um, it wasn't because uh, I was tired of theater or I felt like I was outgrowing theater as a medium. It was in response to uh, a, a terrible loss, uh, the, the uh, immense shock of um, the sudden death of my second daughter. And there was something about that loss that opened certain senses in me that I had that had not been opened before, meaning I was waking up and perceiving more reality than I knew what to do with, basically. And so <clears throat> I was starting to become quite overwhelmed with what I was seeing around me, what I was seeing within myself, what I was seeing in other people. So I became overwhelmed by impressions and perceptions that I didn't know what to do with. And usually when this sort of thing would happen, I would process it through, I would write a play or I would create some kind of experimental theater work. And I knew that what was happening to me, the perceptions, things I was seeing required a more complex, multi-layered um, medium. And it just seemed natural to start learning how to handle a camera. So I bought myself a video camera and just started creating these short little pieces. And then that led to writing my first feature um, as a way of um, uh, coping with or living with the loss of, of my daughter. Um, and the Oracle is, is basically a story of the last day in the life of this old patriarch guy um, who in his um, kind of dream life or in his bardo between, you know, lifetimes, uh, he's guided through these sequences, these out-of-body 
uh, events uh, by his granddaughter. So this granddaughter named Ariadne, who was the middle name of, you know, the daughter that I lost, um, guides him along from stages from different bardos, bardo number one, bardo number two, bardo number three. And he's going along um, and he's gradually awakening to the fact that he's either dying or he's already died. Um, and so that that pretty much, you know, started the um, uh, the process for me of, you know, discovering that film, which includes music, uh, image, story, characters, um, motion pictures, how that um, uh, can um, act as a, um, you know, a viable, you know, way of communicating some of these uh, more complex um uh, impossible impressions that I've been subject to. You know, I um, I was visiting. Uh, I didn't have a ton of time to watch all, all of your films, but I watched a lot of the Oracle. And um, what's the young girl's char- the character of the young girl's name again? Ariadne. Ariadne. She speaks to her mother about um, about Grandpa. I think it's Grandpa. And yeah. she says she says. Uh, uh, oh no, he's not sick. He's just dying, and um, and then that brings me to the vanishing fields where um, his sensei or his teacher um, says like, "Oh, you know, you 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 felt like you were dying. Cool." He's like, "Why cool?" And he's like, "Because you're dying every day, so you're just realizing it. You're just recognizing it and just tapping into that ultimate reality that." that were just dying. I wanted to ask you about another film you made, um, but I wanted to, let's see. Oh, um, another way to exit the storehouse of swarming knowledge is through humor and nonsense. Nonsense is a conceptual reality relative to the point of view. It starts with nonsense expresses one's limit or threshold of knowledge, the outer limits. And you made a film called The Holy Holy Guardian Angel, um, which... I see, I don't know if, if you were meaning to express this or the trickster or the Heoka, the, the great like clown, bringer of nonsense, holder of the god of nonsense. Um, can you tell us a little bit about your inspiration for the Holy Guardian Angel? Well, it's actually, um, the title for that film was um, To Dream of Falling Upwards. Um, it was dedicated to the Holy Guardian Angel, but the, uh, the, the title was To Dream of Falling Upwards. Uh, the inspiration for that um, came from a, a point of um, rage or outrage in me um, upon uh, hearing about the fraudulent uh, deathbed signing of, um, of a company, uh, Falcon Press, um, that occurred. Um, uh, the previous publisher of Falcon Press, Christopher S. Hyatt, uh, became for me a mentor and a friend uh, throughout the uh, the 80s, the 1980s, a little bit into the 90s. And then we had a falling a falling out. And he was on his deathbed. He was um, suffering from a number of different strokes and cancer and a number of different ailments. Um, and this is something that's chronicled. This is not something that I just kind of made up. Um, but there was a um, an encounter uh, between... Christopher Hyatt and his son on uh, when 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 Hyatt was dying 
that um, uh, really pissed me off. And I didn't know um, what I could do about it. And, you know, I knew that something had to come forth because, you know, I, I tend to be of a kind of um, artistic temperament where I can't just sit on my feelings. Somehow I have to symbolize them or share them or put them into a form or something. I can't just fucking be with my feelings sometimes. Um, so um, I decided to um, <clears throat> to write a story that took really that took place within the um, uh, magical world of an OTO type um, order, you know, where you had like a, a central magus type and he had these two apprentices and and um, anyway, it's a kind of a complex story to kind of go into here. But the um, the main inspiration was the outrage of being um, uh, to, to, you know, reacting to the fraudulent deathbed signing and wanting to put that into a story somehow. Um, and so to dream of falling upwards is a kind of um, kind of a zany occult. A thriller, I guess you'd call it. I don't know what kind of genre. I don't really create genre movies. I think my movies almost like create each of them their own genre. Uh, they're marketing nightmares. Um, you, they can't really sell. Sell. Um, one of the reasons why I offer them all for free online, if people want to go check them out, uh, just go to verticalpool.com, and there's a link there. You can uh, find the page, and you can watch any one of or all of my movies online if you want. Um, I was reading through your book and I found so many parallels with 2020, like everything has come to a head. I heard somebody say, um, yesterday that we're in the fifth dimension. Like there's no more talking about how we're reaching the fifth dimension. We're here. Um, and because we're here, we're all on timeout while we recognize and realize that we're, we're in this new paradigm. Um, and it, in 1985, apparently, maybe you added this, but um, the new age is plagued with cosmic foo-foo. The new age is dead. Shh, the act is over. Um, you, you talk about the, um, like the con man uh, that is, you know, acting as the new age. And you talk about the new age obsession with wholeness and perfection. Um, but I see more of a resurgence to people claiming identity as a new ager and all of these new quote unquote new age philosophies. Um, I'm curious what you make of, of, uh, the new age, uh, contemporary new ageism, um, being that you, you called it dead <laughs> back in 1985. It seems like there's this, uh, this clinging this uh, desperation of, of wanting to resuscitate and keep the spirit of new ageism alive. What's your perspective? Well, <clears throat> I called it dead back there because um, it was dead to me. Uh -huh. And um, in the 1980s saw a cresting of the first wave of the new age movement. Um, and I came to know the new age movement really as um, an advertising industry um, dressed up as a spiritual movement. Um, and so 
I, I came to that actually firsthand because, you know, getting my book published at Falcon Press, they were very savvy. They knew how to sell books and they said, well, we're going to put you in the new age category. I go, no, 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 I'm not new age. <laughs> and, and so I had to kind of fight tooth and nail and they say, look, you know, we know more about what sells the books and this is what we're in it for the money and you're going to get paid and, you know, you'll thank us later and all that. Um, so they, you know, they kind of taught me a little bit about, uh, you know, not just the new age as, as an advertising um, industry uh, dressed up as a spiritual movement, um, but also how to how to make money and, you know, how to organize my work in such a way that it might be more relatable or more palpable to people so that I could make a living off of, you know, what I love to do. And I appreciate that. I, I really have a lot of respect and love for, um, you know, uh, you know what they taught me, even though at the time I was like a total brat about it. Um, so, you know, anytime um, historically, you know, there's an eruption of of an extended state of uncertainty, which is pretty much any time a, a, a pandemic hits. And currently, right now, we're in a state of great uncertainty. Uh, uncertainty on many levels. Nobody really knows precisely what it is that is the COVID or what the vaccine is or when it's going to be over or when the restriction is going to be lifted. So all these uncertainties, right? And so that's not really new. That's happened throughout history, these stages where there's extended states of uncertainty. So people basically discover where they're at with unknowns, relating with unknowns, how good they are at permitting uncertainty. And... Um, or how poorly they relate with uncertainty and, you know, be, start acting like nervous monkeys because their anxiety is overwhelming them. They can't permit the uncertainty, so the anxiety takes over. Um, anxiety and uncertainty are two really different things. You know, uncertainty just represents the actual reality of just nobody knows what's going on. And then um, anxiety is just simply a natural response of the central nervous system to reaching your personal threshold for how much uncertainty, you know, you can permit before, you know, you're acting like a nervous monkey again. Um, so the whole kind of resurgence of the new age movement and different offshoots of it, different ways of seeing it, of course, it's going to emerge and, you know, kick up the dust and come back again. And, um, you know, for people who are you know, searching for answers, uh, people who don't know how to think for themselves yet, or people who don't know how to live with the questions, um, that they have to have certitudes, that uncertainty is not something they cope well with. Um, and so, you know, I think it's just a natural kind of thing that's happening. I think that the, um, the artists or the people who are living creatively uh, have figured out that uncertainty, the state of uncertainty, is actually a creative state. Uh, it's a state where you can you have the opportunity to um, uh, introduce directions you hadn't, you know, um, conceived of before or you haven't tried out before. And so you see a lot of um, artists right now are creating new material uh, in lockdown or quarantine or whatever you want to call it. Um, some of them are sharing it on Zoom. Some of them are, you know, out in the world sharing it in different ways so there's a lot of creative energy happening right now 
um, in the midst of all this anxiety, in the midst of all these people who are looking for answers and attaching themselves to different, different dogmas or new age ideologies or whatever, it's all good. Um, do, so, um, Brian, feel free to chime in anytime you, you feel called, of course. Um, Actually, like... I, I did have a thought uh, that I wanted to comment on uh, coming from the uh, going through Angel Tech and being in 2020. And I think you already kind of mentioned this a little bit, Andrew, but um, I, I feel like a lot of this transformation, like you were saying, Zach, oh, we're already in the fifth dimension kind of uh, thought process of this while not being uh, a new thing pandemics do happen over the course of history uh but the shock that it and the the like that the shock that puts the stress on those basic circuits that that are the foundation of who we are uh would you be able to speak on that as like uh almost like an, an initiatory experience i've heard people talk about this this pandemic as almost like a uh humanity-wide initiation. Uh, what would you be able to say to that? Well, <clears throat> I would say exactly the same thing as you, only I would take the word almost away mm. and just go ahead and, and confess that there is an initiation occurring. And initiation or initiatic experience, uh, for me, the way I come, have come to know next, I've, it's something that's really familiar to me, is, is basically... Um, entering such a high level of novelty in terms of your own senses and t your thinking process, your own feelings, um, you know, where you don't really have any maps or explanations or ready references to contextualize what's going on because it's too new. So this is, I think, what initiatic experience is about, is being open to high level of novelty. And this novelty acts on the nervous system in different ways, you know, different you know, nervous systems are not all alike. So you have all these different reactions to being acted on by the high level of uncertainty and novelty that's, uh, that's happening right now. And some people were, you know, are going to attach to the idea, oh, we're in the fifth dimension. Okay, so that's one way of, you know, contextualizing or whatever. And, you know, other people like myself, I just refuse to put any kind of ideas or images on it because I'm, I'm operating on a different level of interacting with unknowns um, that um, uh, supports the unknown being the unknown. I, I don't want to fill it with a concept or, or an image. I want to actually experience it. And, and that experience for me um, then uh, kind of goes through my own filters, my own kind of intuition, my own thinking process, my own feelings, and it produces visions. And these visions um, is something that I follow. Um, and I follow them um, in the scripting of, of stories, um, uh, in the, um, uh, the composition of songs, um, and sometimes just not producing anything, but just living my life uh, in a way where I feel called or I'm following something, you know, rather than trying to understand you know, what it is I'm following or try to put a concept on it. Now, I don't recommend my approach or what I'm doing to anybody else because, you know, it, it's, I think it's really, everybody has their own, you know, individual way of coping and uh, living with uh, the novelty and the uncertainty of the times. Um, 
But yeah, initiatic experience and how you respond to initiation uh, in some ways, um, I think, becomes the real initiation. So uh, the actual shock of uncertainty or the shock of indivisibility or the shock of impermanence, you know, the sense of, oh my God, we're all dying or we're going to die if we get the COVID or whatever. The awareness of impermanence is now part of the shock that's going on. So these are shocks and these are shocks that real life delivers all the time. They're not the real initiation. The shocks are not the initiation. They're the instigation of the initiation. The true initiation is how each of us are responding to each of these shocks, what we do and how we relate to the shocks, how it awakens us and, you know, what it is that we are, um, let's say, creating or producing out of those shocks. Ontario, I, uh, I want to honor uh, this time that we have together and also recognize our agreement to speak for an hour. So I wanted to ask if you do have a few more minutes um, to answer a few oh, more yeah. questions. Yeah, let's go for about 15 more minutes. Okay, sounds great. Um, what is your attraction to hedonism? You have called yourself a hedonist. Uh, uh, like a proud hedonist in a few other interviews I saw with you. Um, I feel like it doesn't get repped enough as something that we can be, we can claim. Um, so what is your relationship with hedonism? Um, gosh, I, you know, it's been a while since I've actually given it a name, but I just really like feeling good. I like feeling high. Um, I think fundamentally I'm more of a laugher than a weeper. You know, mm -hmm. uh, it doesn't mean I don't weep and don't, you know, shed a tear now and then, but it's, I, I laugh a lot more than I cry, a lot, lot more. And I think it's because it just simply feels better. But then again, I may not have had the, the deep ecstasy of, of a great cry, for example, for a long time. So who's to say? But um, the same reason I'm, I tend to be more of an optimist than a pessimist because I'd rather feel good than think that I'm like always right. You know, that there's a certain uh, reward that I think that the hardcore pessimist uh, uh, clings to the sense of being right that, yeah, life sucks and, uh, you know, the world is going to shit and government is trying to control us. And so, yeah, all those things are true, but there's this fixation on the pessimistic outlook that um, uh, it doesn't feel as rewarding to me as the um, uh, as a more optimistic outlook of seeing what's actually going well and what it can uh, be transformed into something better than you know what I'm getting you know from the world at large um, and so optimism feels better in my body and because I've, I've got a deep background in theater and physical theater in particular not so much like talking theater. Um, so uh, I come from a, a kind of a deeper embodiment bias, you know, that I'm body friendly, I'm body positive. Um, I have a good relationship with my body, even though I don't completely identify with it, thanks to my out of body experience. Um, I still have, um, you know, a, a positive relationship. The body is my buddy. It's a friend, my body as friend. Um, and 
I have discovered that my um, my body likes feeling good better than my body likes feeling bad. <laughs> and so it's just kind of simple, basic thing. So I don't know if it's so much about hedonism as it is about just this basic intelligence of optimism, the basic intelligence of, um, of ecstasy over agony. Um, uh, I agonize over very little. Um, you know, if something's not working in my life, I don't agonize and complain about it. Uh, I usually either, you know, let it go or, you know, find an alternative or, you know, fix it somehow. So I'm pretty practical in that way. Uh, I'd like to read a little from Angel Tech, if uh, if that's okay. Oh, sure. Um, let's, let's go back in time. Yeah, well, you wrote, <laughs> bringing, it, bringing it present, uh, because it's ageless wisdom. Uh, Another way of courting the body is the conscious avoidance of generalizations, which I totally agree with um, for myself and my own experience anyways, that overgeneralization creates um, uh, over-reductional and, and people just want to categorize things as being good or bad or right or wrong or evil and good or just or justice or something like that. And I just wanted to bring note to another brilliant thing that you wrote, which is the two new intelligence tests. And there's six levels of intelligence. There's the stupid, the bright, the smart. And then above smart, you have silly. And above silly, you've got brilliant. And above brilliant, the most intelligent is simple, which I've got this Henry David Thoreau shirt and it just says simplify. And I think that that is true, that just breaking things down to its most simple is oftentimes the best approach towards understanding it and making sense of it. Um, and I just wanted to finish reading a little passage here. It says, as fallen angels, we are graced with living in the age of re relativity, which has spawned a new breed of philosophical animal or relative disbelief. The overall intention behind Angel Tech is twofold, how to access intelligence and to put it to work. And then you also write, there is no final arrival or absolute enlightenment, save honorable mention given to confessing ignorance. Um, and I so see that as antithetical to every other book that the peers of books that are alongside your book in the New Age section <laughs> um, because they're the opposite of confessing ignorance. They're all about trying to fill in the blank. Um, and so my question to you in regards to reading all of that is in your own experience, is meaning extracted or is it created? Or is it a mix of both for you? Um, again, you know, my bias um, as an artist, um, kind of a lifelong creative type, um, I've come to know existence as uh, primarily uh, meaningless by nature. And this is not a complaint or a lament. In fact, it's, it's actually a source of inspiration uh, for my imagination uh, to create the meaning um, where there isn't any. And so I don't, 
I stopped searching for meaning many, 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 many years ago uh, when I realized if I really wanted meaning, why don't I just create it? Why don't you just make something that is meaningful to me? Um, and so the whole notion of, um, you know, what constitutes meaning, it's a philosophical question, obviously, you know, what, what makes something meaningful to one person can be completely meaningless to another person. Um, and so, you know, what constitutes meaning for me is the, uh, the joy of creating context and discovering the context of a situation, uh, is where and how I invest meaning, you know, almost into anything. So I'm one of these individuals that likes to shift the context of things to maybe show a different way of seeing things, a different way of um, discovering how something might be meaningful in a way that maybe a viewer or an audience member or a reader in a book may not have found it meaningful before. So sometimes just a shift, a slight shift in perspective or an adjustment of the context or the way something is presented uh, can be enough to, um, uh, you know, uh, make a difference, I guess. Are you still interested in shamanism? You know, I never really was. Um, I have too much respect in actual shamanism to um, call myself a shaman or to say, oh, I'm interested in shamanism. I've never really come across like that. Um, you know, Angel Tech's subtitle, uh, A Modern Shaman's Guide to Reality Selection, uh, was actually um, part of um, selling the book to the New Age um, market. Um, because- oh, the, I see, I see. Huh. Yeah, yeah. Uh, now, other people can perceive me as a shaman or they'll say, oh, you're into neo-shamanism or you're into this kind of shaman. And that's fine. I don't really care what people think about me. It's just simply not something, it's not how I see myself. I don't think of myself that way. If, if I were to like uh, dig a little deeper into, oh, who am I really? I'm probably more of a kind of a sorcerer. You know, and what I mean by sorcerer here, um, I come from a 40 year background um, in a line of group ritual dynamics called paratheater, where the training involves um, an asocial approach to accessing the, the physical body as the living embodiment of the subconscious and then turning to the subconscious to begin sourcing forces, um, whether they be emotion, sensation, um, patterns of uh, archetypal energy that come through the body, through the cellular nature, through even the DNA, and finding ways to give expression uh, to these um, energies uh, in the body um, through movement, through um, action, through gesture, uh, through sound, through characters, through stories, you know, so forth. And just as a reference here for, you know, for those people who have not heard of the term paratheater, kind of in the theater, but not of it, um, go to paratheatrical.com and... Um, Can you say that one more time? The audio blipped out. Oh, I'm sorry. Um, yeah, for those individuals who... Um, uh, don't have, who haven't not heard of the term paratheater, uh, you can discover more about it on my other website, 
paratheatrical.com. And uh, there's uh, an enormous archive of um, documentation of the group work that has been occurring over the last 40 years, uh, video documentations, um, books, um, uh, articles, uh, uh, stories by people who have done this work, and on and on. Um, and if you want to really go into it as a um, practitioner, uh, the original Falcon Press just released my newest book, uh, State of Emergence, um, which came out just uh, last month. And the original Falcon has it. Uh, you can get it on Amazon as well. Cool. Uh, thank you for your time. Brian, do you have any questions or comments, concerns, compliments? Uh, uh, yeah, uh, Antero, thank you so much. This has been a pleasure. Um, I would love to hear if you wanted to share anything about what you're currently working on if there's anything you want people to know about I would love to you know stay tuned into what you're what you're doing um, I think the main thing if people want to kind of follow my um, trajectory is to go to these websites uh, verticalpool.com or paratheatrical.com and between the two of them um, I'm posting announcements uh, documentation and links to videos um, whether they're music videos that I'm, um, uh, you know, putting together for music that I make with my wife, Sylvie. Um, the Vanishing Field that you mentioned earlier on in this interview is also listed with all my other films at verticalpool.com, uh, where you can um, view any or all of my films. Um, <laughs> there's a lot of them. I've been at this for quite a long time, and um, it's probably too much. <laughs> to take a look at, but uh, take a peek and then you'll find out. Uh, I am currently scripting a screenplay for my next film. Hopefully I'll enter production sometime later next year. Um, right now the working title is called The Alchemy of Sulfur. And the only thing I'm going to say about it, it's really about um, uh, this woman who's uh, a novelist. She's writing a novel and the characters in her novel start coming to life in her daily existence and then she has to contend with um what that might really be about awesome um i like going through your youtube account and and just watching five minutes of any given film uh just to get like a wide array spectrum of like which film i might want to watch in its entirety and I appreciate it because um, you have been making films uh, since the early 90s, at least. And um, so from then, I get to take a look at what you were working on and the technology you were working with um, any given year, any given like little era or chapter. And your film work is quite prolific. So you've given us quite a bit of material to digest and, uh, and entertain and, um, you know, inspire us. So thank you so much for putting that all out there for free and I look forward to, uh, to to watching more now that I've gotten the chance to dive a little bit deeper into your work. Um, Thank, thanks for um, um, inviting me on board here. It's been, it's been a delight. Um, one question that I do ask most of our guests is if you had the opportunity to put a message in a bottle back 35 years to a previous version of yourself, would you write 
that a message to yourself? And if so, what would that message say? Uh, that message would be um, just keep doing what you're doing. Um, is there is there a song that you have been listening to recently, whether it's one of your own or one by another musician you'd like to end this episode with? Oh, um, hmm. Yeah, I don't know. I, I, my tastes musically are really eclectic. Um, between even the music that I create with my wife, it runs across a number of different kind of um, genres or whatever. Um, and I listen to a, a real wide spectrum, you know, from, um, uh, oh yeah, I, I, yeah, it's an impossible, what I can do if <clears throat> I can send you, um, I can send you a link to one of my music videos and then you can, you know, take the audio off that and put it at the end of, um, of this interview, if you like. That would be awesome. Um, well, I hope to invite you back to have a deeper dive into materials and have conversations about the notes that we take on life and how to make sense of them. If you're open to that sometime down the line, maybe a year or two years, five years from now. Um, but in the meantime, it's been a real treat to get to talk to you. Thank you so much. Okay. Yeah, we'll be in touch. Okay. Sounds good. Over and over again. Enjoy Trick of the Sun. It's not easy to find the same.
everybody out there. Hope you're safe. Hope you are finding meaning for yourself at this junction, this grand junction as they're calling it. And I hope everybody stays wild. Yeah, let's check out this
Cause sadness is easy, yeah, the sadness is easy, it is easy with you. I know, I know, it's not easy, oh I know, it's not easy, oh I know. Oh me, oh me, it's not easy, oh I know, it's not easy, oh I know. I know, I know, it's not easy, oh I know, it's not easy, oh I know. Oh you, oh you, it's not easy, oh I know. Thank you.